are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to uh, our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And as I said, we're picking up with step number 26 on discernment. And we are on page 201 of the blue volume, if that's what you're using from Holy Transfiguration, and uh, with number 80. So again, that's page 201, number 80. Naturally, it is impossible for a bodiless being to be confined by a body. But for a person who has God, everything is possible. And so despite the fact that we know the needs of the body and of the flesh, of our appetites, uh, with God, all things are possible. We can imitate the angels, as it were and seeking to have our life directed to God in all things, to engage in a constancy of prayer, to have all of our appetites, all of our desires to be ordered toward the Lord and toward that which is good. And so all things are possible by the grace of God, despite the, the nature of the struggle and the fierceness of it on a day-to-day -day basis for us, that we are not to lose heart uh, that in an instant, God can provide us uh, with, what, with what is needed. Uh, Arthur, uh, we are on chapter 26 or step 26 on discernment. About midway through number 80, if you're careful. You. Number 81. Number 81. Just as those whose sense of smell is healthy can tell who has hidden perfumes, so the pure soul can recognize in others both the fragrance which he himself has obtained from God and the stench from which he has been freed, though this is imperceptible to others. This is a common thing that we see in the stories of the lives of the saints, uh, those who die in the odor of sanctity, or those who have the odor of sanctity, that there is uh, a kind of sweet fragrance that one will perceive in those who are holy. But likewise, John tells us that those whose hearts are pure have this capacity uh, to recognize the, the stench of sin. And Philip Neary, who I have often brought up in these groups, had this particular gift, and especially surrounding- hey, Give me a glass of ice water, please. I'm sorry, hold on for a second. This, uh, with uh, 
in particular with uh, lack of purity of heart or chastity, that he could pick up the odor. And so in being able to do this, uh, certainly not condemning the inv individual, but knowing the cure to, to provide the, the healing balm. And, uh, and so it's imperceptible to others, but to the, again, those who have this purity of heart, they are able to recognize it in, in others where there is this kind, uh, you know, of, uh, was it um, corruption that sets in because of sin uh, that ultimately leads to death and our corruption, the corruption of the flesh that they are able, as it were, in, in anticipation uh, to pick this up and recognize it uh, when it's in others. And uh, that might be a little bit of a frightening thing if one's confessor is able to acknowledge that. But uh, I think most people found it comforting in a saint like Philip Neri, who was so gentle and could address the issue uh, at hand. Number 82. It is impossible for all to become dispassionate, but it is not impossible for all to be saved and reconciled to God. So not everyone is going to reach the level of freedom from the, the passions or where these passions have been transformed by the grace of God and one's appetites and desires, one's love has become directed toward God. Uh, we There are many who might leave this world uh, who still are weighed down as it were by habitual sin. Uh, but John says it's not impossible for all to be saved because of that fact, that very few might reach that level of perfection, of dispassion, or the passionless passion, as it were, where one's desire, longing uh, is for God in all things. Not everybody is going to be blessed with that gift, but nonetheless, God in his mercy can save all. And again, that is a comforting thing. And uh, in the scriptures, uh, again, we, we hear that said, that it is God's will that all would be saved. And uh, again, this doesn't mean that that will necessarily be the case, uh, but it's part of the will of God that the fruit of the cross and the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Eucharist, would bring about that transformation. And uh, so when all to him. Uh, I'm seeing a flashing AR at the top of the screen. Does anybody happen to know what that might mean? No? Is everybody hearing me okay? Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. So everything's working. All right. Number 83. Take care that you be not mastered by Philistines, those thoughts which urge you to be inquisitive about the ineffable judgments of divine providence or the visions that people have, which secretly suggest that the Lord is partial for they are the offspring of self-esteem and are known as such. A great uh, bit of counsel, not to be overcome by the Philistines. So not to be overcome by the thoughts, the temptations to call into question the providence of God. 
that often it is very difficult for us to hold on to that trust in his promises and to trust in his guidance, uh, even in the face of the great crosses that we often encounter throughout the course of our life. And the Philistines, as it were, would uh, lead us to, to call that into question, call God's judgment and his goodness into question. And we often do that when we find ourselves troubled and our hearts agitated. We uh, begin to think that God is partial, that he blesses some more than others and loves others more than perhaps he loves us. And uh, this is all always a temptation for us uh, to uh, fall into a, a kind of dejection in the spiritual life. Uh, once we begin to question the providence of God, his love for us, then we also begin to question the, the value of the ascetic life. And uh, then this can lead to a kind of negligence or laziness on our part. And uh, so this is a very important uh, demon, as it were, or thought, logismoid, to be able to discern when it approaches us. And especially when we find ourselves going through a period where things are impossible to understand, and when we find ourselves frustrated and our plans being thwarted uh, at every turn, uh, and uh, it's then that we are often tempted with this. Number 84. There is a demon of avarice, which often apes humility. And there is a demon of vainglory and one of sensuality too, which both urge to almsgiving. However, if we are clear of them both, we should not stint our deeds of mercy wherever we are. So there are demons that ape virtue. And so our vainglory, for example, can encourage us to be generous, to give uh, alms, uh, but not in a hidden fashion, uh, but in order that others might see it, even if it's only a single other person, uh, that it can be a way of uh, elevating our self-esteem. And so we are not, as it were, to let the uh, left hand know what the right hand is doing. Uh, we are to, to give purely out of charity and not draw attention to it. And today, if you're Latin rite and went to liturgy, uh, you, you, you know, here, you heard this from the Lord himself. You know, when you give, you know, do not proclaim it on the, the street corner. You know, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And uh, this is true, I think, of all the virtues, that uh, we are not to hold them up, uh, even before our own eyes, uh, to, to admire them or look at them, examine them. What we are to be focused on is on God. Uh, the one uh, exception to this might be in the course of spiritual direction to gain a sense of where it is that we are struggling what we need to address uh, and where there might have been growth in the life of prayer. But uh, within that relation, outside of that relationship, there's always a danger 
that it is vainglory or some other uh, vice that is urging us on uh, to, to this particular virtue. Uh, Carol, you have a question. Yeah, do you mind just explaining um, briefly how avarice apes humility? Uh, how avarice apes humility? That's a good question. Well, I think we can long in our labors, and we've heard the monks talk about this before, uh, working in such a way as to focus on gaining an abundance of uh, money to provide for oneself. And this can be true in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, we can, uh, you know, work and drive ourselves, seemingly humbling ourselves uh, with the idea that we are going to give to others and uh, or that we are serving the Lord when it is really serving our own will and our own desire for worldly goods. And, uh, you know, probably most of us have had that thought, well, if I win the lottery, if I, you know, <laughs> win the Powerball, you know, I'll take care of this person, this person, and this person. And when in reality, uh, we don't know what we would do in those circumstances. Money, you know, avarice can change people. And as soon as we have that in hand, we might have some other ideas of what we would want, want to do with it. Antony writes, maybe another example is the miser who wears shabby clothes just to save money. That's uh, that's an interesting thought. Uh, that's I think that's right on the mark too. So sort of aping that humility, you know, again, you know, looking the part but really having the desire to hold on to one's money uh, for other purposes. Very good. Number 85. Some have said that demons work against demons, but I know that they all seek our destruction. Uh, and so in some of the fathers we hear that many of the demons don't necessarily work together, that they have their own particular purpose, like the demon of lust is going to seek to draw a person into the particular sins that are associated with that. It isn't necessarily going to be a coordinated attack, some of the fathers will say. Uh, John uh, seeks to, I think, move us away from such speculation. What's important for us to understand is that they all seek our destruction in one form or another, whether they're working together or that they are so focused simply on tripping us up in regards to a particular passion. It doesn't matter. Uh, we, what matters is that we should be vigilant in the spiritual battle and be on the watch for all of them. Number 86, our own strong desire and intention with God's cooperation precede every spiritual labor, both visible and mental. For if the first has not paved the way, the second is apt not to follow. So interesting, you know, John elevates for us the importance of uh, our intention and our specific desire 
for the Lord and for the good. And in doing so emphasizes a kind of synergy that exists between our will and our desire and the grace of God, that God does not force himself upon us. And so if we lack that desire, if we lack that intention, that God is not going to give us that grace or force it upon us against our will, that this is not how love acts. And, uh, and so this is why it's important that we, we don't fall into this trap of viewing Christianity or the struggle with the passions as uh, a movement into a kind of stoicism of not having desire. We, we are, again, are desiring beings, and it's essential that we inflame that desire for God through the life of prayer and through the ascetic life as a whole and through uh, receiving the sacraments regularly, praying for the outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, because it is this, then, that makes us long for the things of God. And when God sees that even in the slightest uh, measure, immediately will pour forth his grace upon us. And, uh, and so this is an important thing. You know, again, a desire to repent, even when we are deeply attached to a sin, that we have this sense or we tell ourselves we're going to fall back in that again, into again, then to pray for the gift of repentance or for the desire for repentance in order then that God will provide us with the grace that we need to turn away from those things and turn towards him with a greater desire. And sometimes that's all that we are capable of, uh, given perhaps the, the depth of uh, a, a particular attachment's hold on us or how habitual a sin has become or how deeply rooted. Number 87, if there is a time for everything under heaven, as Ecclesiastes says, and by the word everything must be understood what concerns our holy life, then if you please, let us look into it and let us seek to do at each time what is proper for that occasion. For it is certain that for those who enter the list, there is a time of dispassion and a time for passion. I say this for the combatants who are serving their apprenticeship. So there is a time where we are going to be deeply immersed in the struggle with the passions. That is going to be at the heart of the spiritual life. We should not expect otherwise when we are combatants that we are going to be in the thick of it and it's going to be very difficult. And then, but there is a time also for dispassion that if we are faithful in that time of struggling with the passions, then the fruit of that fidelity will be dispassion, that we will come to know a freedom uh, from that particular passion or sin's grip on us. And so have greater freedom in loving others and not be held down by these particular desires. He goes on to say, there is a time for tears and a time for hardness of heart. And so he's not holding these things up as though we pursue 
those things. Uh, there's a time for tears when we are moved by compunction to weep over our sin and the ways that we've turned away from God. But there will be times where, you know, our hearts are hard as rock and we seem incapable of having that desire for God and really want to hold on to the particular passion that we are attached to. Uh, and that, you know, and so this is what he's setting up for us. We, we have to be prepared to move between these different times and have a clarity of what it is that we are seeking and what the opposite of each of these are. The opposite of tears would be hardness of heart. And so what we have to pray for in those times is compunction, the deep sorrow for our sin, that God would give us the gift of tears uh, when we lack them. There is a time for obedience and there is a time to command. So there's a time when we are to listen to God, when we are to heed the counsel and the commands of superiors, those who have responsibility for our development. Uh, but there might also be a time where then we are responsible for others to, to give that, that command, to, uh, to give a person their particular obedience of, of, of the day. And I think we experience that naturally when we're growing up and we're children. You know, there's a time where we receive the commands, where we live in obedience to our parents. And then when you, you know, get older and get married and have children, then you're the one who has the responsibility for forming others, for guiding and directing them in the way they need to walk. There's a time to fast and a time to partake. And so there is a time to deepen our discipline and really, uh, as it were, uh, to do violence to the self, the body, our appetites, uh, in order to bring them into order. Uh, I think when we begin a deeper period of fasting, we do see the attachment that we often have to food, uh, especially as a form of consolation. Uh, that something that we turn to almost automatically throughout the course of a day uh, to alter our mental state, to make us feel better. Uh, so there is a time when we are to fast, but there's also a time to rejoice with others, but uh, to rejoice in the Lord, to celebrate, uh, as it were, Easter, uh, following on this Lenten discipline. We, we celebrate the gift of the resurrection. And uh, so this is, again, part and parcel uh, of life. There's, you know, we are to enter into, as it were, the warp and wolf of the spiritual life, uh, what John is laying out for us. There is this, you know, back and forth, uh, an ebb and flow that we often see within the spiritual life. And things can be cyclical. We're times that we feel stronger in the spiritual battle, times that we feel very weak and overcome by the passions. There's a time for battle with our enemy, the body, and a time when the fire is dead. So there are times where, say, 
when a person is, is young, perhaps the the fire of the bodily desires of lust, uh, the desires of the flesh are very strong and burn hotly. And there might be a time where one has uh, aged, not simply chronologically, but matured in the spiritual life, has uh, deepened one's desire for God, the life of prayer, and to order those passions where that fire is dead in the sense of it's not something that controls and and uh, manipulates us or leads us away from God. A time of storm in the soul and a time of calm in the mind uh, that often crises in the spiritual life. It anticipates great spiritual growth and uh, so we can think in the scriptures of a couple of different things. Uh, uh, the storm on the sea, you know, that they, uh, despite having seen the things that Christ could do, uh, when they're tossed about and he's sleeping in the boat, they re rebuke him, fearing the loss of their, their life. And then again, in an instant, he calms the sea. And so it is for us that we often will experience uh, these storms within us that seem to overcome us and threaten us spiritually, uh, where we want to give up, where we want to quit. And, uh, and then when we turn to the Lord, uh, a deep calm and consolation can come to us. Uh, another example from the scriptures would be certainly the, the crisis of the Lord's crucifixion itself and his burial. Uh, when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and uh, uh, the tomb is empty and they think that they've, you know, someone's stolen the body and she is asked, you know, why it is that she's weeping, you know, that he is not dead, he is risen, that uh, her whole life had fallen apart uh, at his death, that he had altered the course of her life and her identity. And in and through him, she had experienced a love and mercy that was unparalleled. And then all of a sudden it was ripped from her grasp. So much so that when she realizes that it's Christ, that she wants to cling to him. And not just to take hold of him in the sense of a restored or lost love, but in the sense of uh, leaving what had happened behind as if it never took place. And the Lord, if you remember, says to her, do not cling to me. I must go to my, my father and your father, you know, my Lord and your Lord. And uh, that he must allow her uh, or she must allow him to become what he desires to be for her, not simply to go back to what was, but now to experience the fullness of life that he offers. So crisis in the spiritual life often is this prelude to not only a deep calm in mind, uh, but to a, a growth in the peace of, of the kingdom that we can imagine what, you know, joy, and peace flooded over them when 
he presents himself and says, peace be with you. And he shows them the wounds. And when Thomas probes the wounds, all of these things uh, replacing that the deep storm within them of their own betrayal uh, with the calmness and the joy that flow from uh, the revelation of his love, but also that uh, eternal life uh, is among them. Um, let's see where I leave off here. A time for heartfelt sorrow and a time for spiritual joy. So there is a time for us uh, where we are confronted with the depth of our poverty. We see what we are really capable of doing in our lesser moments. And when we follow our baser needs. And, uh, and so this time does call for sorrow, a breaking of the heart. But from that, a uh, broken and contrite heart will emerge, again, a spiritual joy, uh, the invincible joy of the kingdom that we are drawn into uh, when we experience that sorrow of compunction. A time for teaching and a time for listening. Uh, so again, you know, a time when we are to acknowledge our lack of understanding and so have to sit at the feet of the Lord, but also the feet of others who have greater experience in the spiritual life than we do. Uh, but also a time when then we are to console as we have been consoled, the scriptures tell us. That we what we receive is not to be held as our own, but we share that with others, what we've come to understand, but also, more importantly, what we've come to understand through experience. A time for pollutions, uh, perhaps on account of conceit, and a time for cleansing by humility. So we've talked about this before, pride rideth before the fall. And so when we have conceit about ourselves, that uh, making a gain in a certain virtue, we think we've made a gain in all the others. And this conceit then leads, he says, to pollutions. We experience a fall that humbles us and then cleanses us by humility. A time for struggle and a time for safe relaxation. A time for stillness and a time for undistracted distraction. <laughs> so isn't that interesting a time for stillness where we are to retreat you know uh from the world and we see this in the lord himself and uh and the calling of his disciples to do that as well to go off to a hidden place to pray uh but also a time where we then bring that stillness into the circumstances of our day-to-day -day life which might be filled with distractions, and yet we can still be very much focused upon the Lord and his will in those moments. A time for unceasing prayer and a time for sincere service. So again, the idea of leaving Christ for Christ, that we have unceasing prayer, that we are fostering this constant communion with him, but the moment that he presents himself to us in the other, we immediately drop 
what we are doing in order to respond and to give what is needed without hesitation. So let us not be deceived by proud zeal and seek prematurely what will come in its own good time. That is, we should not seek in winter what comes in summer or at seed time what comes at harvest because there's a time to sow labors and a time to reap the unspeak unspeak unspeakable gifts of grace. Otherwise, we shall not receive even in season what is proper to that season. So isn't that interesting that we have to be able to discern the movements of God uh, and how God acts in our life uh, in order that the fruits that he desires for us uh, might come about, might emerge. And so to be able to discern where we are, what season we are in our life, what we need to be attentive to becomes very important so that we aren't acting uh, counter to the things that God desires in the moment that we aren't becoming a stumbling block, as it were, to ourselves and God drawing us along. So if we grow impatient when God, for example, is sowing the seed within us that is going to produce uh, some bit of wisdom or uh, produce a, a certain virtue within us, if we become impatient and try to leap forward to the harvest by controlling circumstances and because of our impatience and trying uh, to anticipate things, we can end up losing what God would desire us to have because we've stepped away, excuse me, stepped away from that trust in his providence, that he's present in all those moments for us, the good and the bad, however they might appear to us. And in that sense uh, of his being present in every moment, uh, we can let go even of that sort of categorization or let go of the need to control or let go of that feeling that he has abandoned us or is not present. We know that he is. And we might be experiencing a storm in our life for any number of reasons. Maybe he's perfecting a virtue in it, or maybe it's because we've been in us, or maybe it's because we've been negligent. But God is present and his grace is at work within us. So, you know, again, there's almost this kind of poetic uh, nature to the wisdom of the fathers, you know, that John can go through all of this and capture for us in a paragraph, you know, the movements of, of and the actions of God throughout the course of our life and make it very clear to us uh, how important it is for us to seek discernment and, and to have discern the gift of discernment during these times so that we aren't fighting against him. Any comments so far on any of this? Okay. Number 88. By the ineffable providence of God, 
Some have received holy returns for their toiling before their labors, some during their labors, some after labors, and some at the time of their death. It is a question which of them was rendered more humble. So interesting that God, for one reason or another, in his wisdom, can provide a person with uh, certain returns, even before any work has been done. And, uh, and or only at the moment of death. And John says, really what determines the value of that is the humility that's produced. A person who uh, sees that God has poured something upon them without their having earned, earned anything or without their having labored, that he gave it as pure gift, uh, can be deeply humbled by that and express a sort of an unbound gratitude to God and so be driven on uh, to an even greater desire for him. Uh, but there are others who might receive that and uh, think they deserve it and not be humbled, but be filled with pride. And so you can see that, you know, that regardless of when a gift comes, uh, what is important for us is how we respond. Are we humble in the face of it? And in that humility, do we respond with gratitude? Now, in number 89, he begins to describe the kinds of despair that we often will face in the course of our life, and in particular, the spiritual life. And again, this is where uh, the gift of discernment is ever so important. There is a despair that is the consequence of a multitude of sins, of a burdened conscience and unbearable sorrow, because the soul is covered with a multitude of wounds and sinks under the burden of them into the depth of despair. And there is another kind of sorrow that comes to us from pride and conceit. When someone considers that he has not deserved a fall that he has had, the observant will find the distinguishing feature of each. The one coldly gives way to indifference. The other in despair still clings to his struggle, which does not accord to his state. The former is cured by temperance and good hope, and the latter by humility and the habit of not judging anyone. So interesting uh, that, you know, one can fall into a kind of despair and dejection because they have fallen into great sin. And, uh, and it leads them beyond uh, a sorrow and compunction that, leads them back to God and the sorrow, the, the sorrow becomes unbearable for them. They lose sight of God and his mercy altogether. And so for them, it, the response is to uh, temper that and to hold on in hope in the promises of God, even while we can't see his presence or how it is that he could forgive us or believe that we could rise out of the, the depth of the sin into which we'd fallen. Whereas another person can think uh, that they had nothing to do with that fall. And 
and uh, are filled with pride. And so uh, they fall into their own kind of despair and they can then uh, no longer trust God, but for a different reason. And so they become indifferent uh, to the things of this spiritual life. And for them, uh, they are to, to foster the cure of the soul through humility uh, and then also through the habit of not judging anyone. And uh, so this is often where, you know, they fall into that deep kind of despair because in their pride, they did judge somebody harshly and God allowed them to experience their own poverty outside of his grace and allow them to experience the consequence of their pride. And so they, they have to struggle uh, and take hold of the healing balm of this habit of not judging anyone, not allowing themselves to evaluate another, but to keep their focus upon themselves and their own wounds and need for, need for healing. Any thought about that particular paragraph or anything that is confusing or anyone might add, want to add? Number 90, it should not surprise us or seem strange to us when we see that some do bad deeds under the cover of good words. For perhaps even in paradise, the snake was destroyed by overwhelming conceit. And so good words, you know, it can be this kind of mask for something much darker under the, the surface. And so uh, even the, uh, an angel, you know, because of their pride can become a demon, you know, that, uh, and in that state, then through their words seek to lead others into sin. Uh, and with what seems to be good words, you know, take of the fruit of the tree, you know, your eyes will be open, which will be something good. You'll see things as God sees them. You'll see good and evil for yourself. You'll know it. And uh, then you will be like God's. And so the words seem so very good, but underneath them is something quite bad. Uh, and, you know, I think in our uh own life, um, perhaps to make this a little bit more concrete, that, you know, we can talk a lot about the faith. And uh, this can even be a way of winning a person over to oneself rather than to God. That uh, for those who have religious sensibilities, a person who has the capacity to speak about the faith eloquently uh, or to capture some beauty of the faith uh, can use that to manipulate others for money. You know, this has been a constant thing that is, a, you know, uh, taking place throughout the years and then, or to win them over to themselves to manipulate them so that they could be used emotionally or physically. And, um, and so 
you know, that which appears to be good or a person that seems to be an angel of light uh, might be just the opposite. And so we have to be discerning, you know, uh, you know, something can look very holy, uh, but uh, it can prove, it needs to be put to the test by time and experience. And boundaries still need to be maintained in order to, to protect that which is good and precious within oneself. Number 91, in all your undertakings and in every way of life, whether you are living in obedience or are not submitting your work to anyone, whether in outward or in spiritual matters, let it be your role and practice to ask yourself, am I really doing this in accordance with God's will? What a simple thought. Uh, so in anything that we're doing in life, and whether or not we're living in obedience to a superior, uh, an abbot, or whether we're on our own, uh, to ask ourselves this, this probing question, you know, is this from God or is this from myself? Uh, is this self-will that's guiding me? For example, when we, I mean the beginners, carry out some task and the humility acquired from this action is not added to our soul, then in my opinion, be the matter great or small, we are not doing it in accord to God, according to God. For in us who are still young in the spiritual life, Growth in humility is the fulfillment of the Lord's will. And for those who have reached a middle state, perhaps the test is the cessation of inner conflicts. And for the perfect, an increase and abundance of divine light. And so, you know, regardless of what those later states might bring, that for those of us who are beginners, growth in humility is the uh, evidence uh, that something is from God. And so if we are engaging in the spiritual life or we are engaging in works of charity, or if we're living the common life and we are doing good and we are fulfilling what's asked of us, uh, if it does not produce humility uh, within us, if we are, do not let go of our attachment to our will and self-judgment, then we know it's not from God, that we even are, even while we are doing what we are told, we are still doing it uh, as those who are driven by self-esteem and again, by our own will. Perhaps we simply want to be a monk. And so we do everything. Yes, father. Yes, father. You know, there are always those in religious communities or yes, mother, yes, mother, in women's religious communities who have this kind of obedience, you know, and that comes very, rolls very easily off the tongue. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's rooted in humility. The moment that they, uh, and this has happened innumerable times, the moments that they become a full member of the community Often what is revealed is the real intention there, that they were not formed in this humility. And so that pride 
is often given free reign and they can become very destructive in the common life. This is why we see, in, even in the stories of John and others, uh, but in religious communities, individuals often being put to the test and sometimes rigorously, de uh, depending upon whether or not uh, there seems to be evidence of great pride there. And it's because that if this is not uprooted and then all of what they do in their training in these beginning years can be fruitless if, uh, if it's not done with that, that humility. Anthony writes, another thing to be careful of is to try observing what is true, a true state of affairs, but to stop short of having unholy judgment or even feelings or inclination to hound something bad out or to resent something. Right, you know, that our response should be to love and to pray and to fast for others rather than pointing out all of their weaknesses, defects, whether natural or spiritual. I think we can very quickly see, and this is the danger that the fathers speak of when we develop a kind of discernment and we begin to see these things about ourselves, uh, where there is a lack of humility, we can direct that capacity towards others and see their weaknesses and flaws and point them out or rebuke them for it, when in re reality, we should be praying for them and making sacrifices for them in order that they might respond more fully. So taking, as it were, that burden upon ourselves as if it were our own, because as we've talked about so often before, it is. You know, there is no such thing as an individual Christian. You know, the, again, we are part of the body of Christ. Uh, Dave? Dave? Yes. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that this is what I'm hearing is that the work that God is doing is more interior than exterior. And the work that you're speaking about, like the pride of being, yes, yeah, you're doing that in the, the praise of men. But right. seems like the, the well, work of God is more inside. And then when those insides are changed, the outside usually yeah. follows. The outside, the things on the outside can be illusory, that uh, they might look a certain way to us, but not be a real reflection of what is within the heart of the individual. Uh, there can be hypocrisy there so that on the surface, things look as though they are good or holy. But again, within the heart, something much different can be, can be present there. Uh, and so putting things to the test becomes ever so important, most especially with ourselves. You know, is this something that is I'm doing because of the will of God? And, you know, certainly before we have the capacity to see it in others. But your point is well taken that, you know, it is the in internal world that is most important. Uh, because one can feign so many different things. Uh, you know, the story of the weeds among the wheat, you know, that you cannot uh, distinguish one from the other. 
in that story. If you remember, we've talked about this before, the, the weed was the bearded Darnell that looks exactly like wheat. And so, you know, the Lord says you can't rip it out because you'll rip out the wheat with it. But even if you, uh, but in reality, you can't even discern between the two of them because they look exactly the same until they head out and you begin, you know, the, and, until the harvest. And you can sift out that which is, you know, the weed there. So that which, you know, virtue and uh, and that which is driven by pride can look very much alike. Uh, David Sudersky writes, I used to waste a lot of time thinking and rethinking about decisions and people. Even doing this, I often made bad decisions. I was taken and was taken advantage by or attacked by people. I now simply concentrate on, does this lead me closer to God or further away from God? I also pay attention to the mood, other things around me much more. Yes, absolutely. Because even when we see things clearly, even when we're right, so even when we see the truth, it is often a partial truth. That's what can be so problematic, that we can see a certain element of the truth of, a, of what's going on in a person's life, what they're doing, or in certain circumstances. But because we only see that partial truth, and not all of it, when we act or when we say something, the exact opposite uh, uh, result can emerge where all of a sudden things fall apart or we become the object of attack as you mentioned here you know because you know we we did not see something or that we you know we acted only on our, our judgment and really not again out of that better place of humility that is focused on what's going on within and if we happen to see Others struggling or doing something that, again, our response is to pray uh, that they might be strengthened in the battle. But, you know, some of the worst things that have happened uh, in my life were things where I did think I saw the truth. And coming out of the other side of it, you know, I, I was right. I did see it. But there were things there that I could not possibly have imagined that were going on in people's lives or what they were doing or thinking that only emerged much later. And sometimes circumstances end up going in a completely opposite direction that you expect. And, and it can even be uh, something that turns out to be really destructive uh, when you thought that what you were trying to do or say was going to bring even healing or was going to expose something to a light that needed to be ex exposed. There's far too much confidence, I think, in our day and the way that, you know, we talk to people and the way that we argue about all sorts of things, whether it's, you know, politics, what's going on in the world, you know, that it's just, we don't know. There's that little scene, even in the Lord of the Rings, where, you know, Frodo says, I should have killed, or he said, uh, Bilbo should have killed uh, Gollum when he had the chance. Uh, you know, this sort of like 
evil creature. And Gandalf says, you know, destroy him. He said it was mercy that held back Bilbo's hand that this Gollum figure in Gandalf's mind, despite his twistedness, was going to have a part to play in the unfolding of this journey and uh, and at, and its end. end. And I, th I thought, gee, that's a really wonderful insight that Tolkien had and that was even expressed within the, in the movie that here was a creature that had been over hundreds of years whose mind had become so distorted and was capable, had murdered already, but was capable of so many different things uh, that Gandalf, you know, this wise figure could still say, we don't know, we don't see all ends. And so our, our response is to be merciful. Uh, a couple of other comments here. Cindy writes, would Oriental Catholics call this yin yang? My maybe not seen. Uh, my relatives say that uh, all religion is the same. Well, it's not. Uh, you know, I think there's uh, a difference between, you know, yin yang and, you know, you know, one thing sort of meeting its opposite or, or karma people would speak of, and the providence of God, of a living God who has revealed himself to us, uh, has taken our humanity upon himself, revealed to us what it is to be a human being, but also has drawn us into his own eternal life and love. Uh, so they aren't the same. And, uh, and this is where, you know, discernment comes into play again. You know, I think we can often be drawn down that path uh, not to make the distinctions that we need to make. Uh, you know, is this from God? Or again, is, is there something about this is, that is speaking to me for a certain reason and drawing me down a path that has nothing to do with how God has revealed himself to us? Sam writes, I think he, as St. John Climacus, also says elsewhere that vainglory has no birth date that with pride is the mother of all the vices. Humility, he also says, is one of the destroyers of its fruit and source. Right, that vainglory has no birthday because it's probably emerges with pride itself. You know, this uh, capacity to uh, view ourselves in, and view ourselves with a very high esteem and so that emerges right, right from the, the beginning. In fact, John doesn't even see the need to make a distinction between vainglory and pride. It's really a matter of the strength and control that it has over us. Uh, if you remember when we went through those earlier steps in the ladder, uh, it might be worthwhile going back and looking at that. Uh, Cindy Moran writes, uh, it's always a struggle for me. They are new age. Yeah, you know, I think it's difficult in our day and age because, uh, you know, there is such a profound individualism uh, and uh, a relativism, you know, that all things are equal. So the idea of a revealed religion, 
an objective truth, the God manifesting himself in a definitive, unique, unrepeatable fashion uh, is often a completely foreign idea to people that where reality is something that is 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 what you make it and how you shape it and this is what's difficult you know i think it enforces us to alter the way that we even think about evangelization uh entering into conversation with someone who does not believe in objective reality or truth is going to be very difficult you know, I think what one has to become uh, is the truth. One has to become love and selfless love and humility to manifest it in such a way that the other experiences it and experiences it in a powerful way, in a visceral way that goes beyond, again, you know, the limitations of intellect and understanding and reveals something of the truth to them directly and this is i think a problem you know we uh, often will turn christianity into a philosophy ideology and it's it's not going to have much of an impact in an age of nihilism where nothing has meaning and there's a uh eastern orthodox uh, priest monk who's since passed away, Seraphim Rose, who wrote a lot about this. If you find some of his works on nihilism, uh, I'd read them because they're incredibly fruitful. It almost explains and portrays our day and age with a kind of frightening clarity, you know, what the world will look like when that reality has taken hold. And, uh, and so more than likely uh, what's going to emerge is a kind of martyrdom in one fashion or another for the truth. You know, those who hold on to purity of heart or hold on uh, to humility or, uh, you know, don't resolve things with violence, but turn the other cheek are going to suffer greatly in this world. Those who embody the Beatitudes uh, are going to experience the things that Christ experienced and, uh, and sometimes in, in great measure. Cool. So that brings us on that happy note uh, to 8.30. And uh, so there, this is such, you know, we're at step 26. And, you know, John is going to move on then to these higher gifts of stillness, contemplation, love, in the final three. Uh, but this is sort of the height of what this uh, purity of heart brings to an individual, what humility produces, what fruit it produces, discernment. And so this is why he spends so much time. As I mentioned, we still have 20 pages yet to go with this step because it's so important. And so this one warrants, you know, certainly reading, reading and rereading it over and over again. Okay. So we'll close there for the evening. And uh, as always with the, our Father, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Now I want to go bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.